0: Welcome to Whose Podcast Is It Anyway?, a show where our host engages in a lively conversation with the guest, the guest chooses the topic, and the host has no prior preparation or knowledge of the topic. Please note that the opinions expressed on this program are the opinions and views of the host and the guests, and are not necessarily the same opinions and views of Al Seeger or Point of Insanity Game Studios. And now, here's your host, Chad Knight.
1: Welcome to Whose Podcast Is It Anyway? Episode 34. Hello and welcome to my mind Tonight, I would like, if I may, talk about something that is near and dear to my heart. Writing. (laughs) I read a lot when I sit and think about it. I would like to talk about a few things that I write and how I go about doing it. Uh, First, I write for work. No, I'm not an artist per se. Uh, I write proposals for customers. I I have to figure out what goes into a job from day one to the end of the project and try to capture every aspect of the job, from from material cost to labor cost, and if it's part of the overall cost, the cost of putting the technicians in a hotel and, and feeding them. Then I have to take all that and figure out what the customer is looking for, and then bring it all together to come up with the final cost for a customer. Then, work through the project to keep it on time and on budget, if not under budget. Secondly, I write for all my podcasts. I do some, if not all, of the writing for all of my podcasts. This podcast is likely one of the least amount of writing, as the only thing that was really written out is the Welcome to My mindmare section, or I find that I miss things I really want to say. So if this portion sounds more scripted than the rest of the podcast, that would be why. Finally, I write for the role-playing games I run. I can spend time equal to or more than the amount of time I actually spend running the game writing. A lot lot of the time spent has to do with what type of game I'm running. For instance, if I write for Dungeons & Dragons or some other game set in the medieval times, I find it easy to write. Mostly what I do is I write a series of, of story arcs with a starting point and an ending point, and the details in between are pretty much left up to my gamers. They will show me how they want to play and and where they want to go. So my job as GM is to let them play uh, the way they want and gently nudge them to the preset endpoint. Now, if I run a horror genre game such as Call of Cthulhu, I run completely different. Since the I, I see these games as more investigative in nature than a d and game, I make sure they need to investigate specific things in order for the game to move forward. It's a lot of fun watching the players try to figure out the web of hints, clues, and, and evil that I lay before them. That said, it can cause a lot of slow-paced gaming, so that's where my job as the Keeper... I have to come up with things to keep them interested without them losing focus on the current issue or mystery they are trying to solve. So with this type of game, I will likely spend four to six hours writing for a two-hour session of the game. Uh, It gets overly in-depth, and because of that, I don't run horror genre games too often. I, I guess I just don't have the time. So if you have any thoughts or ideas or anything that could help me out or just let me know how you do your writing, that would be great. So, Al, what's your secret to writing? You have several published titles. What's it take to write a book?
0: Well, uh, really, it kind of depends on what I'm writing. And a lot of it is just trying to plan ahead and get the ideas in your head. Now, of course, finding the time and motivation to take those words and put them into a written format, yeah, that can be a little tricky. But I, I mean, I guess getting past like the writer's block. I know that's always been something that's difficult for me.
1: Okay. Yeah. Writer's block. uh, My problem usually isn't writer's block. It's my, it's motivation. I get to a point in a story. I always have these great, marvelous, wonderful beginnings. And then I have these great, wonderful, marvelous endings. And the middle is just a bunch of fluff.
0: Yeah, that is true. You are not alone. I mean, I have had some, uh, well, uh, some of the short stories I've done and stuff in the past just for, you know, classes or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. usually I'm pretty good at figuring out how I want it to start. Usually I've got a pretty good idea how I want it to end. It's just getting, you know, getting from A to B that can be tricky. Um, there is one story I did write, and you don't mind that I pitch one of my products, do you?
1: No, absolutely not. That's That's part of the... Uh, uh, part of what we do here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, one of my books I wrote is called Sword of the Western Empire. And that one is a. It started out. Uh, you've, have you ever heard of Namo Remo?
1: Uh, that's that thing in November, right?
0: Yes, uh, November, National uh, Novel Writing Month. And what it's supposed to do is uh, it's supposed to be a challenge to yourself to write a 50,000-word novel through the month of November. And I had the idea one year to do it where I wanted to do a story based on my after-peak systemless setting. And I didn't know what character I wanted to focus on, so I decided to choose one that just kind of appears in a very short segment um, in the one of the sections I talk, talk about campaigning and I okay. use our state of Wisconsin as an example of how okay if you were going to plan out an after peak campaign in your home state here's how you might go about doing it or here's what sh- you know here we're using Wisconsin as a way to hopefully give you some inspiration and mm-hmm. there's this character Augustine Lands that I you know just briefly mentioned in one part and uh for that's when I decided to write the story about him and his background um how he went from being this you know, the soldier in the, the Western empire to being this, you know, swordsman who protects this town in Wisconsin, you know, that I really didn't have a definite ending for that one. That was kind of like, well, we're just trying to pump out words as fast as we can, and then we'll go back and edit it later. So yeah, that right. that one was challenging to write, I think.
1: So now this is, this is, did you complete the book?
0: Oh yes. And it is available at drive through Just go to Point of Insanity Game Studios page on that site, and you too can purchase your own copy of Sword of the Western Empire, which is I think it's like only priced at like about a dollar fifty, so not that expensive. So hey, take a look if it, you think it sounds interesting.
1: All right, sounds good. All right, so let's get let's get into our guest. Everybody knows it's Al. He's back for the fifth episode. I, give I you the man. just
0: like student loan debt. You can't get rid of me.
1: so i give you the man the dude the al what's new al
0: well what's new not a heck of a lot really in my neck of the woods just you know work pay bills try to figure find time to write stuff and go back to work the next day what's new in your life chad
1: you know um not much i i i don't know i'm gonna give a little bit of a teaser here i have started writing for our i'm gonna call it our radio project oh yes um so that um, – I've started writing for that, so – and and I think I got a really good start. I've kind of pushed out what I've got. I've pushed it out to you and to Lou, and I've also uh, pushed it out to the fourth person in this, Dawn. And I'm just waiting to hear what you guys have to say before I go on with it. It's uh, – uh, I'm writing in that 1920s noir style, which is new for me. Um, it, it's a, It's a new – Uh, genre for me I mean I play in that world a lot with like my horror campaigns and that kind of stuff but actually writing in it is is something new so um it'll it'll be interesting to get the feedback and uh see where it goes from there
0: yeah and because I had this idea where you know because apparently I think that I you know I I I don't I have too much free time on my hands (laughs) but um I just had this idea I wanted to try doing like a in old time, like radio type drama. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that, Chad, that you got me interested in checking more into is Lovecraftian fiction and, you know, also not only just the works of Lovecraft himself, but stuff that was, in you know, because from what I understand, Lovecraft, he inspired a lot of other writers and he had these other, you know, this other circle of writers that he... Was friends with that also made their own stories about the Cthulhu mythos? So- yeah,
1: and then uh, one of those writers was August Derleth, and he started after Lovecraft passed away. He he started. Um, uh, I forget the name of the press company, but he started a a place that the entire idea was to print Lovecraft's works and the works of other people that worked in the same world, uh, better known as as you know the mythos, the Cthulhu mythos. Those, so it was um, actually started in Saw City, Wisconsin, which is kind of a, a neat little thing. Um, I believe the the company still exists; it's still there. Um, and I've always had it on my plans to get down to Saw Saw City and and go and look at this place. I've never made it there yet, but um, you know, it's just one of those cool little uh, pieces pieces of Wisconsin history. So that's kind of a neat thing too.
0: Yeah, and. The book that really inspired me, and I'm going to have to loan it to you uh, one of these days, mm-hmm. it was written by Robert E. Howard, who most people Conan. are more familiar Yep, who wrote the Conan stories. And it was, again, a bunch of works that were essentially inspired by the Cthulhu mythos and, like, for example, Dagon, uh, that name appears a lot in the some of his stories. So, like I said, well... well uh, the- you,
1: Oh, sorry, go ahead. Finish up yeah. your thought there.
0: Okay. Yeah, so it's well audience, uh stay tuned. So hopefully something good'll come out of uh the come out of this. Now we're not sure exactly when we're going to have a chance to finally put all this together. Um but hopefully
1: it's b- coming. It's it coming. is coming.
0: Hopefully before <laughs> the end of the year. Well, that would
1: be nice. Yes. Now, what I was going to say is a lot of Howard's work, in fact, the Conan world shares its world with the world of Lovecraft. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, they're in the same world. Now, the time periods are completely different. Conan's written in more of a, a, um, almost
0: pre-Atlantean oh, or.
1: Yeah, pre-Atlantean. I, I always think of it as like post-Neanderthal, um, yeah. Type you know they're 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 human, but they're not that far removed from like Neanderthal man, so you know that's just kind of the way I've always took on the the Conan world, so
0: yeah, and there's actually a video game series that the look and feel of this series I think for me really kind of pictured what that type of world would be like, but I don't know if you ever played any of the games in the Golden Axe series. No, no, but yeah that that's just how Iowa's felt that really perfectly summed up the essence of what that type of world would be like, where you know everything has a very brutal primitive feel to it, but anyways, go on.
1: That's about all I had to say on that. I think we're oh. gonna jump into today in history <laughs> and then we'll jump right into your topic. How's that sound?
0: Sounds good. Hey, it's your show. It's your podcast at least for now,
1: <laughs> hey. Hey, what are you trying to say here? <laughs> Whose podcast you're is to say. it anyway? Um, I think it's mine, but I have been proven wrong before.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, Chad, so, tell us about this week in history.
1: Well, today in history, and as you know, Al, I get all my uh all my history facts from uh history.com slash this day in history.
0: And of course you so, have to find folk at uh the History.com website would like to sponsor the show for all this free advertising we're giving them, hey, send us an email. I would would be okay with that. (laughs) Yes, you
1: can email us at whosepodcastisit at gmail.com.
0: Okay, got that? Uh, Because I'm sure that a lot of the higher-ups and decision-makers for History.com, I'm sure they're all listening to this show right now.
1: Well, why wouldn't they be?
0: Of course. But anyways, go on.
1: (laughs) So March 24th, 1989, Exxon Valdez runs aground. One of the worst oil spills in U.S. territory begins when the super tanker Exxon Valdez, owned and operated by the Exxon Corporation, runs aground on a reef in Prince William Sound in southern Alaska. An estimated 11 million gallons of oil eventually spilled into the water. Attempts to contain the massive spill were unsuccessful, and wind and currents spread the oil more than a hundred miles from its source, eventually polluting more than 700 miles of coastland. Hundreds of thousands of birds and animals were adversely affected by the environmental disaster. It was later revealed that Joseph Hazelwood, the captain of the Valdez, was drinking at the time of the accident and allowed an uncertified officer to steer the massive vessel. In March 1990. Hazelwood was convicted of misdemeanor negligence, fined $50,000, and ordered to perform perform 1,000 hours of community service. In July 1992, an Alaska court overturned Hazelwood's conviction, citing a federal statute that grants freedom from persecution for those who report an oil spill. Exxon itself was condemned by the National Transportation Safety Board and in early 1991 agreed under pressure from environmental groups to pay a penalty of $100 million and provide $1 billion over a 10-year period for the cost of the cleanup. However, later in the year, both Alaska and Exxon rejected the agreement, and in October 1991, the oil giant settled the matter by paying $25 million, less than 4% of the cleanup aid promised by Exxon earlier that year. So I remember this happening. I, I'm sure you do as well, Al.
0: Oh yes, I remember hearing about it and uh did you ever watch the show the uh In Living Color?
1: No, I didn't.
0: Yeah, cuz I remember around the time um the they actually uh did a little spoof on that and uh you know there's actually a few uh people who really get who got their start there like Jim Carrey was one mm-hmm. of the actors on that show um you know the Wayne's brothers but uh, Jamie Foxx, I know he was also on that show, I think, like the second or third season. But, yeah, I remember they had a, a thing they, they, where they were spoofing the Exxon family. <laughs>
1: that makes sense. But, you know, and that makes me think of something completely different that has nothing to do with the topic I just read. But I just noticed today on Netflix that MST 3000 is now on Netflix.
0: Mystery Science Theater so, 3000?
1: yes. Sweet. The entire first season is on on uh, Netflix, so when we're done here tonight, that's where I'm going. <laughs>
0: cool. Because I know I there's a few that I really liked. Um, I have to say one of my favorites is "The Day the Earth Froze." It's a film based on the um on the uh, Finnish epic of the Kalevala, and one of one of the things that's funny about Mystery Science Theater three thousand for those who haven't um seeing it is usually sometimes they'll pick a topic or something in the show and they'll keep working on it throughout the show. They'll make jokes about it. And one of the uh things early in the movie is see in the, the legend of the Kalevala there's a blacksmith Ilmarinen and okay. he he creates this device called the sample which you know, could make like gold and silver and wool and salt and all that. Well, in the, the movie, um, there's a, a evil sorceress. And I think the land is called Poklo, Pokola, Pocola. And she kidnaps Ilmarinen's sister, Anaki, And Ilmarinen and his friend, Lyman Kynan, go to rescue her. And, uh, for part of it, they're like, you know, whenever they say sample, because at this point they didn't really say what the sample was. Um, okay. So they'd be like, you know, what's a Sampo? You know, hey, what's a Sampo? And it's like, they had Mike and the robots like, or no, this was Joel, because this was first yeah. season. He's like, if you know what a Sampo is, write it on a piece of paper, throw it away, and try not to think about it. But <laughs> watch it if you <laughs> yeah, have a chance. The, the,
1: the, well, if, if it's in the first season, I'll get to it, obviously. Um, but the first episode, which I started watching, was called, is called Manos, the Hands of Fate.
0: Yes, which is from what I understand, one of the considered one of the worst movies ever made, uh, similar to, I I know another one that ranks up there is plan nine from outer space. Okay. Okay.
1: Well, anyway, let's, uh, let's jump into, uh, to you, Al. So here we go. We've spent time in the past talking pizza. Uh, we talked about our kids and what it was like back in the day. Uh, We talked about Halloween, and last time you had the Ultimate Quartz. So what do you got for me tonight? How are you going to try to trip me up tonight? Okay, well,
0: this is more of a discussion, and this is actually something we did talk a little bit about back in October when we were hanging out at uh, the New Game of Palooza game convention. Okay. What made me think about this topic is last year there was a video that went viral. And we, we only caught like, I mean, the the video only started partway into this confrontation that was happening in Walmart. So we don't know what led up to this confrontation. And I tried doing some research on this video to see if it was true or if it, you know, if it was like an actual event and it's not something that a couple of people staged. As far as I know, or as I was able to find There's nothing that says it was staged. Unfortunately, I haven't really been able to find anything following up on what happened in this video. So let's just assume for the sake of argument in today's discussion that everything that, you know, this is a true video and everything that was said in it is is factual. But the video,
1: oh, go ahead. I was just going to ask you what, what's the video because you, you're giving this lead in, and I'm not no—I don't know what you're talking about. Okay,
0: there's a video of a confrontation between a man and a woman checking out at Walmart, and each of them had a, a young child with them. Well, this woman is just yelling and being nasty to this guy because he was paying for his groceries with food stamps, and. You know, like I said, she was just going off on him about how, you know, it's, oh, the, you know, the Democrats, they only do that because they know that they'll vote, you'll vote for them if they, you know, they promised to give you food stamps. And, you know, this guy was saying, it's like, hey, I work 50, 60 hours a week. And this woman even made this comment, you know, he's like, guys, like, I support my family. I work 50, 60 hours a week. And this woman's like, no, you don't support your family. I do because those food stamps come out of my paycheck. And, and you know, there was quite a bit of, you know, swearing done in this video. So not not exactly a very safe for work video. But Mm -hmm. it got me to thinking, you know, why do people demonize the poor like this? And I think it's very relevant when you consider what's happened in the, you know, in American politics over the last couple months where, you know, there's the whole deal how the Republicans want to, you know, repeal Obamacare and introduce their own health care plan. And Mm -hmm. so far, most of the articles I've seen about that it's pretty much pointed to the fact that the people who are going to be hardest hit by this plan, if it goes through are going to be the poor. Um, Also Betsy DeVoe or DeVoe, the education secretary. Yeah.
1: Yeah. DeVos.
0: Yes. She made some comment that was interpreted as saying that the free and reduced lunch program, you know, should be discontinued. And also there's a later, you know, actually not too long ago, one of Trump's uh, staff members, okay, I think I, I thought I wrote his down name down, but it's like, I think Mick Mavoy or something. Uh, he implied that, you know, someone was asking him about the like Meals on Wheels and some of these after school programs. Because um, that's one of the things that's on the chopping block in President Trump's upcoming budget. So yep. he was saying, now, of course... Some people say that maybe what he's saying is taken out of context, but saying that cutting these programs was the compassionate thing to do. And, you know, you look at it, this really isn't very surprising because usually when you ever do see some sort of draconian measure aimed at the poor, it's usually coming from a Republican. And I'm not saying Democrats don't do this. Maybe there have been Democrats that have introduced these draconian measures, but usually you don't hear as much about them. But really, I mean, politics is okay. Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, that aside, there is this tendency to demonize poor people. So Chad, why do you think people have this insistence on demonizing the poor and looking down upon them as if they're something lower than a cockroach?
1: You know, and, and that's a great question. And it's something that, um, in, in all honesty, Al, it, it's something that I deal with myself. And it's not because, I mean, you've known me for several years now. I'm not a heartless person, but I see in a lot of cases where things that exist, such as food stamps, and other sorts of um, governmental, um, you know, aid projects um, that are taken advantage of. Okay, and I think that's where a lot of this hate and distrust come from. But that being said, I I, I think a lot of what uh, what people consider, you know, people taking advantage of the system doesn't happen all that much. I think 95% of the people out there that benefit from these programs, uh, whether it be food stamps or free lunch or, you know, Meals on Wheels, any of these type of things, I think 95% of the people that use it need it. Unfortunately, in the world we live in with the The way that news is covered and it has to be sensationalized, everything has to be sensationalized. It's just the way American government or not government, uh, American news works. So I think those 5% get 95% of the time on the news channel where the 5% or the 95% who use the program's when they need to, only because they need to, and aren't taking advantage of this system, don't get any time on the news.
0: And Chad, does, that make, does that make sense to you? Yes, it does. And you bring up some good points, which I'm sure we're going to talk about in a, a few moments here. But when you said about the declining rate, you're actually right on with that. Because when I was looking into some you know, other stuff, when I was researching this you know, to, to talk about this topic... Uh, Pew Charitable Trusts, there was a study they cited back, this was back in 2014, but there was this study that's been going on for several decades, and the rate of confirmed fraud with welfare food stamp recipients has actually been declining over the last few years. Um, also, uh, the Washington Post study, uh, cited a study by Fullerton and Rowe, and this was a 2016 study, Again, that's been done over several decades. And you mentioned something about how you think that a lot of the people who are on these programs are only using it for, uh, you know, they're only using it as much as they need to and then they get off the program. And Mm -hmm. again, that has actually been verified by various studies and statistics where um, first, you know, there's this. There's this uh, line of thought or this stigma, I guess, I don't know how you want to uh, to phrase it, that people who are on welfare, they, they're they on it for extended periods of time. And the, uh, let's see, I think it was a study from uh, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and this is from the uh, some research that was compiled and published on September 2nd of last year, that... Approximately one third of the people who are on, you know, these welfare programs, you know, food stamps are off within a year or less. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that it doesn't get a lot of coverage. And why do you think that usually, okay, why do the news networks, why don't they say, Hey, you know, about a third of the people on these programs are on it for a year or a less?
1: You know, and I think certain places do. Um, I, I don't know about you. I listen to NPR quite a bit or WPR or whatever's coming through the speakers at that, that time of the day. And they talk a lot about, you know, these programs and stuff. And then people come on and they talk about it. But the average person doesn't just sit and listen to NPR. Um, but just let's, let's take a step back from this whole topic and just look at, the news in general, right? So, so what does your news consist of? It consists of news, weather, and sports for the most part, right? Right. So the weather gets, oh, I don't know, I'd say a third to um, a half of the show is weather, at least locally here for us, because uh, it opens with weather. And especially if there's snow or something going on, it gets even more time. Then you look at sports. Sports gets the smallest amount of the time on there. And news is sandwiched somewhere in between. Uh, but they always, the, the, just in general, the news in general is not the good stuff. You've got, you know, you've got, Oh, who died? Uh, you know, who was murdered? Uh, where was the car accident? Uh, what company's being ripped off? Uh, what's president Trump saying? And then maybe somewhere in the middle, they'll do this nice little happy, you know, hometown piece or whatever, you know, um, You know, Joe Joe's uh, grocery down the road got an award because they did X. But it's such a small portion of even the news portion of the the um, nightly news that it's like there's no point. I, I very rarely ever watch the news anymore because it's so depressing. There's nothing good in the news. And if I want to be depressed, all I got to do is type in the internet and type in news. <laughs> and you can be depressed without having to sit through it for a half an hour.
0: Exactly. And and I think so, you're, Oh, go ahead.
1: I was going to say, and so when we step back into the topic you're talking about where, you know, everything's demonizing everyone that uses any sort of program, it, it's the same thing. They're going to focus on the sensational things. They're going to focus on the things... That are going to get the biggest reaction because it's going to sell the most number of watches, which is going to in turn sell the most number of things to the people who are advertising there in the news. And it's it all comes down to money and sensationalism, or as in the old days they say, sex sells. If it's something that's going to turn you on, piss you off, or put you out, it's going to sell.
0: Exactly. And we were talking a little bit about this back in October. I don't know if you remember or not, but, and I think you made the comment that the problem is, and I think we were actually both in agreement on this, part of the problem is they try to, they pick, okay, if a news outlet, whether they're liberal leaning, conservative leaning, whatever, they're going to pick the stories that are going to best push the narrative they wish to convey. So if you are part of a news outlet and you want your audience to think that poor people are all lazy bums who are, you know, they just want free stuff and they're, you know, they don't want to work for a living. They want to live large on your tax money. Then yeah, Mm -hmm. they're going to show you the story about, they're going to find someone who is in fact a lazy bum. You know, they're probably not going to tell you the story about the single mother with two kids who works 50 hours a week but still needs food stamps to get by because that doesn't push this narrative that the poor are all lazy parasites.
1: Right. You know, you're 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 exactly right where um if if you're a Dem- or, um, what's the word I'm looking here? If you're a conservative-leaning news station, you're going to show, and I'm sure you remember seeing this. There was they—they they were doing an interview about what President Obama was going to do for people, and they got this one lady, black lady, somewhere in you know a ghetto somewhere, going, you know, Obama, Obama's going to buy me a cell phone. Um, you know, she was to Obama a phone. Yeah, you remember that when that was going around, and that was perpetuated through the conservative conservative news wire now you know not saying that the liberal news isn't going to play that but they're going to put a different backstory on it and it really all comes down to like you said what agenda are you pushing and that's why uh, i'm going to say about nine months ago or so i kind of went away from mainstream news Um, anybody that knows me and has listened to me, I tend to lean very conservatively when it comes to financial uh, parts of the country. But then I lean very liberal when it comes to personal freedoms. So I kind of, for lack of a better term, I kind of get stamped with the big old L, you know, for libertarian. Because a lot of what the libertarian ticket pushes is exactly the way that I feel. And honestly, the way I feel that a lot of Americans feel, because there's very few people, if you if you put it on a scale, I'm going to say it's a scale a lot like what they say for people who are homosexual. You have 10% of the people who are absolutely um, straight. You have 10% of the people who are absolutely gay and everybody else falls on that matrix somewhere in between. And I think it's the same way when it comes to politics. You've got 10% of the people who are the ultra-conservatives You've got 10% who are the ultra liberals. And I think everybody else falls on that, that, you know, that scale in between, you know, and, you know, some lean more to the conservative side, some more to the liberals, some people straddle the middle real well. Um, And I don't think most people even know where they fall upon that line. They just get, they take one or two items, one or two pieces of something. And they're like, that's what defines who they are. When it comes to how they're going to vote, you know, um, uh, case in point, my father worked um, for a paper mill for over 40 years. In that time, he was part of the union and the union and, and I'm not making this up. The union told them who to vote for, especially when it came to um, national uh, elections. They were told, I mean, they didn't say you have to vote for this person, but they were told that the being as you're part of the union, and this is what benefits the union the most, you really should vote for candidate X.
0: Yeah, and my my wife, um, she was part of CWA, uh, Communication Workers of America, and she was a union steward. And I know okay. the union, they... You know, again, they weren't saying you should vote for them, but the the union, they would usually say, we endorse this candidate. Now, in the case of CWA, they tended to push for the Democrat. And Mm -hmm. usually the reason they cited is because, well, as a union, they're trying to, or at least in theory, they're trying to look out for the rights of the workers. Like one of the things I remember from the, I think it was like the 2004 election. Okay. that one of the reasons they were endorsing carry over Bush is because around this time, there was a lot of legislation about overtime rules where Mm -hmm. and there was a member of uh, Bush's uh, administration. I, I apologize. I don't remember the guy's name, but he was saying, well, he was quoted as saying, well, if you don't want to pay overtime, then, you know, just reduce your, you know, reduce their hours. But then, I don't know, reduce their pay, but, you know, make them work so many hours that you'd still be paying them the same amount even after the overtime. And he said something else that, again, essentially was trying to, as a little way to tell employers how to avoid paying overtime. And another, oh yeah, another one is like, well, just put everyone on salary. And then of course, well, of course, it's not like we're encouraging people to do this. So I know that's one of the things that turned them off. And one of the bumper stickers I saw Around this time was steal my overtime, lose my vote. And I should think that that's something that both liberals and conservatives and anyone in between can agree on. You know, if you're working overtime, yeah, you're, you deserve that pay, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, but yeah, to, to get back on track though. And I think that part of the problem is where. When you're talking about like more the conservative leaning outlets, they're going to focus on the people that make you know that make welfare and food stamp recipients look bad. You know they're going to you know because they want to make it look like these people they're again they're lazy, they're entitled, they're living large on your on your tax dollar, and they're poor mm-hmm. because they're You know, they're too lazy to actually work. And one of the more liberal-leaning media outlets, they're going to try to show that, you know, there are people that, you know, they have been dealt a bad hand in life. So they need these programs to get by. And while I think that not everyone who is on these programs... Is a lazy bum who doesn't want to work. Not everyone is an innocent victim of fate who has no control over, you know, over what's happened to them. You're going to have those extremes, but I think most of them are going to fall somewhere in between where, you know, if you do have the lazy recipient who sits around eating potato chips and, you know, talking on his Obama phone while watching cable all day, those people are going to be more the exception than the rule. I
1: absolutely agree.
0: Yeah, because again, the uh, again, research has shown that, as I said, around a third are off the program in about a year or less. Uh, the amount that are on anywhere from about two years to five years. Um, the see the the study I saw it said like about twenty percent was on between one to two years. About twenty six percent was on two to five years, and then. There's about usually the upper teens, you know, 18, 19% that are on it for five years. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: so I think that's, it's significant to look at some of these statistics, how since most of the people who use these programs are only on it for a few years or less, they're using the programs as they're intended. They fall upon a hard time and they turn to food stamps, welfare, Medicaid, you know, these, these government programs until their situation improves enough where they no longer need them. But, right. you, you know, and I, I know the other thing that's of a concern to some people is well, what about these people who do tend to be at, on it for over five years? And I mean, I don't know if we want to really go into this topic, but there, I mean, I think that part of the reason there are, there is that amount of people that are on it for so long is first there, we can't, we can't ignore generational poverty.
1: Cause, okay. Explain, explain
0: generational poverty. Okay. Generational poverty is if you're born poor, you're probably going to stay poor. Your children, if you have them, they're probably going to be growing up poor too. And, There was another study I saw, and I apologize, I should have uh, cited this and uh, written it down, but over the last few decades, upward mobility has become a lot harder than it used to be. I mean, there used to be a time where, you know, you got out of high school, if you didn't mind, you know, hard work, you could get a job manufacturing or construction or warehouse, and you could make enough money to be able to afford to buy a house and and raise a family. Whereas, Mm -hmm. you know, with some of those jobs that used to be, you know, the, uh trying to think of the best way to say it, that used to be these solid middle-class jobs, they're either disappearing or they're not paying proportionately as much as they used to. So while, yes, maybe you can get a job in manufacturing, it's not really going to pay as much as it used to pay. Um, when adjusted for inflation, if if that makes sense,
1: right? Yeah, it still may have the same you know dollar amount. You still may be making seventeen dollars an hour, but seventeen dollars an hour in twenty seventeen does not buy as much as seventeen dollars an hour even in two thousand or you know in the nineties.
0: Oh yeah, and and like I said so that's why I mean when we say generational poverty that there's this tendency for people who are born in poor families tend to stay poor. And I think part of it is the way – there's a – well, I've talked about Cracked.com on my own podcast every now and then. Mm -hmm. They're primarily a humor website, but sometimes they do have articles that are fairly thought-provoking. And there's this one uh, person who writes for him. He goes by the name John Cheese, and he's written several articles about poverty, poverty and what it's like to be poor because he grew up in that situation. And one of the articles he read in uh, was called The Four Types of People on Welfare Nobody Talks About. And one of the things he mentioned that, you know, according to that, uh, you know, there's a significant number of people that are off the program, you know, off welfare within a few months. Well, that statistic isn't very exciting for certain people, Right. Mm-hmm. But one of the other things he was mentioning is that there's a certain group of people they're pretty much trapped by the system. And what he he meant by that is he was describing how there's a certain threshold where you make over this certain dollar amount you no longer qualify for any sort of benefits and they're cut off. Where right. the problem is it should be more staggered or more I'm trying to think of the graduated I uh, that's probably the wrong word but
1: no I think yeah but what you mean by graduated is instead of taking you off completely okay so you cross this shred hole threshold so now you have to this next threshold and you get less of a of a um less of a benefit but you still get a benefit and work your way down until you're actually at a point where getting no benefits actually helps you.
0: Okay yes yeah, so good I did I did describe that correctly um but yeah where and the problem is there's a certain point where, you know, everything gets cut off. And I'm not sure what it is right now, but let's say for the sake of argument that for a, a family of four, it's 15, 000, a household income of $15,000 a year. Okay. And, you know, if the problem is if you make a dollar more than that amount, you're off the program. And again, it doesn't do that... That gradual phasing out where it's just, okay, you get full benefits. Here's the income level. Oh, you make a dollar over that. Boom, you're off. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I'm not sure if it has been reworked, but I, I it makes sense to me anyway. That, yeah, it should be then that kind of situation where, okay, you know, there here's a level where, you know, you're at the, a certain poverty level. You get your full benefits, but then as you start to get further away, you know, further up from that, uh, you know, that, that threshold, the benefits start to go down until you're at the point where, yeah, you can come, you know, you are able to get by. You don't need that anymore.
1: Right. So it's more of a diminishing return than a cutoff point.
0: Correct. So that's. And again, that's just something that we have to keep in mind is if you're – and John Cheese was pointing this out in a couple of his articles. I've read that he wrote that another part of the problem is if you are growing up in this situation of generational poverty, you 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 come to see it as being normal. You know, normal people, they, they're on food stamps. Normal people – they go shopping, and did they do one big shopping trip at the beginning of the month because that's when they get their, you know, their food stamp benefits, and you know, any, and that's it. You know, in normal people, they don't buy new cars; they buy some old junker that has two hundred thousand miles on it that's going to break down every couple months. Mm-hmm. And and another thing, I think that we also need to keep in mind and. Now, where do you stand on how government should assist the poor? Do you think that it should be done at the federal level or more at the state level?
1: Yeah, that that's really a hard question to answer, Al. Um, but I will I will do my best to answer it. Um, personally, I think it should be done. It should be mandated from a federal level. But instituted at a state level. Now, what I mean by that is the, the guidelines, perhaps, uh, for lack of a better word, should be set at a federal level because that will stop people from, example, I live in Wisconsin, well, we live in Wisconsin. and we um, and, and this is hypothetical, you and I, let's say we're on we're we're at the level where federally mandated we are uh you know below the poverty level all right and, and so then we we hit that threshold and then in the w- state of Wisconsin they say well if you're below that threshold this is what we're going to offer you we're going to offer you a b c and let's say that's um let's say that's $1000 a month in cash $500 a month in food stamps um and you know some sort of assistance with rent. Let's I, I, I don't hypothetical situation. Are, yeah, yeah, it's hypothetical. It's completely coming off the top of my head. But now let's say we find that out, and then we find out that our neighbors in Minnesota, they're getting seventeen hundred dollars a month, six hundred dollars in food stamps, and they're getting let's say thirty percent more help for housing. So. If it's mandated at a state level, that means why wouldn't you and I pack up our families and move to Minnesota? It's going to be easier on us because we're going to get more. Okay? But if they mandate it at a federal level and say, this is the poverty line, this is what you get, now it's up to the states to supply that. Is the way I think it would work the best. If I had to choose between the two, I would say it should be done at a federal level.
0: Yeah and I think you'd really need to look at both federal and national level cuz you mentioned the example of Wisconsin and Minnesota. Right. Now I'm not sure what the cost of living is in Minnesota but when it, when we are looking at issues related to the poor and poverty we can't ignore geography. Like Wisconsin fairly decent you can have a fairly decent standard of living on you know a household income of you know, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year. Whereas like like New York and California, I believe are both considered very expensive places to live. Mm -hmm. So you know, and that's one thing you really gotta keep in mind because I remember a friend of mine when we when she graduated from college, she had the opportunity where she could have taken a job out in California. But the problem, but then she looked at what the cost of living would be out there. So it's like it would have paid her like $40,000 a year. And this was in the late 90s, just to put a time stamp on it. But the problem was when you had to consider like the cost of uh, housing, transportation, and everything else. Well, if she got a job for $20,000 in Wisconsin, she'd be able to keep up the same standard of living without having to move out to California. Um. And and another thing, reason I think that geography plays such an important role is we always have to consider what type of economic opportunities are available in a given area. Now, I live in a fairly major metropolitan area, and Wausau, is it – I don't know. Is it considered more of like a mid-sized city or small city?
1: Wausau itself is – I want to say it's about 40,000 people. But when you add in all the little burgs that make up what everybody considers Wassa, we're like a hundred thousand people. So we're a decent-sized city. Um, but I think we still qualify as a medium-sized city, to be honest.
0: Okay. But in our cases, you know, since we do live in a more metropolitan areas, there's going to be a lot more job opportunities open for us. Whereas if you've got someone who lives in a rural community, like, well, this is something that I know that affects some of the communities in the Appalachian area where mining is a big industry out there. So if you live in this small little mining town, if the mine closes down for some reason or another, you're not going to have as many of those opportunities that someone in a more urban area like we would have. I don't know if that makes sense or not. So,
1: um, no, I know what you're saying, but I think I, I don't know if I completely agree with that statement, okay. just because when you're in a rural area, now you're not going to have jobs at Burger King and Dairy Queen available to you, but you're going to be living in an area where there's a lot of farms and farms are always looking to hire people. So it may not be the same sort of um, opportunities, but there's always opportunities no matter, I, I in in my opinion anyway, whether you live in a city or you live in the country.
0: Yeah, I guess I agree, but I disagree because we also have to kind of consider, I mean, those farming jobs, you know, how much are they going to pay compared to other types of jobs you might have open to you in a more urban area? But I don't know, that that might be a topic for another time.
1: Yeah, I mean, you could, yeah, I mean, you definitely, there's going to be uh, uh, wage differences, um, but it's not but we weren't really talking about wages we were talking about the availability of uh, of work but you're right uh, perhaps at another time we can talk about the difference between you know uh being a farmhand being a waitress and and having a regular job that falls under the national you know minimum wage <laughs> yeah
0: and and i know i think it was Warren Buffett put it like this where you know, he he mentioned that he's lucky that he was born in a country where, you know, he considers himself good at managing money and making investments.
1: I think he's, he's got something to back that statement. Yes, it
0: does. And he was actually <laughs> saying that he's lucky that he was born in a country where someone who's good at making investments and managing money can turn that into a very successful career. But he's like, well, but if I had been born in a third world country... What am I going to do? I'm not going to have had the same opportunities open. So I guess that's what I mean when I say that. We always have to consider geography in mind when we are taking a look at, um, you know, the the economy in general. So, but back to the subject of the poor. Yeah. So, and well, yeah, and that's something else, of course, got to consider is, you know, okay, being a poor person in India or Bangladesh is obviously, it's got its own set of challenges then. Being a poor person in the U.S.
1: Yeah, and and as far as that goes, I mean, everything I've ever read that being you're better off being poor in the United States than you are being rich in some other countries. Um,
0: okay, you but know, is that necessarily? See, and I, I have heard people say that, but I guess I don't know where you stand on that. But I, the way I've heard some people say that, it almost sounds like they use it as an excuse to argue that we do too much for the poor or they use that as justification why we don't need to reform our system because a poor person in the U.S. has it so, so much, much better than a a poor person in a third-world country would have. So what's your take on that? I mean, do you think that people just kind of point that out as a matter of fact, or do you think that people tend to use that as more of just a, well, we're already making. They're they're living like kings compared to someone in India, so they shouldn't complain about the fact that you know they that they're poor but living on these social programs.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, let me let me start. The, let me answer that by by starting this way. So I grew up poor. Okay. Okay. Um, we weren't super poor. But we didn't have a lot of extras. We always had food. Um, You know, my dad always had a job, even though being that he worked in the paper industry, he was, that I can think of off the top of my head, he was on strike three times during my life. And one of those times was for quite an extended period of time. So, you know, money was always tight. Um, I didn't grow up wearing designer clothes. I didn't grow up. We didn't drive new cars. You know, we bought those beaters. Um, We didn't have a lot of those kind of things. Now, as a kid, did I know we were poor? Yes. I mean, I don't think kids are stupid, but we really didn't miss out. You know, Christmas still came in December. We still got a little something for our birthdays. You know, none of that stuff was missed. It just was everything was of a... "Quote unquote quality. So, you know, there was times that we didn't get hot lunch at school because the money wasn't there. So we got a cold lunch. You know, we had a, we had to carry lunch to school. Now I know that some people do that just because that's the way it's that's the way they do it. But for us, that wasn't the thing. You know, hot lunch was always kind of the. Kind of one of the things that, um, especially me as a kid, I love school food. I know, I'm a weirdo. but I did. I told you
0: that, and I'm sure most of the people who know you could tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I was
1: one of these kids. I actually looked forward to going to school, and one of the things I looked forward to was lunch, because I loved school food. So when I had a carry-cold lunch, it was kind of a, it was one of those things, it was one of the few things in my life that actually kind of made me feel bad. You know, so but I think to answer your question more specifically, I think that that phrase of, you know, being poor in the United States is so much better than being, you know, poor somewhere else. I think that's used in both ways. I think depending on who's saying it, some people are using it to say, hey, look at this. We already do all this for the poor people. They don't need anything more. And then there's the people that say, you know, it's just a it's just a matter of fact, Um, you know.
0: And I can relate to what you're saying because there was a time during my childhood as well where we did go through a period of poverty. Now, I don't know if we ever received food stamps, but at the beginning of my my seventh grade year, my sister and I both qualified for the reduced lunch program. And okay. a few months later, we qualified for the free lunch program. We also accepted you know, we also got donations from the local food pantry. Okay. And I for me, and I guess it's because partly where I grew up, New Berlin, not exactly known for, not exactly known as being a high poverty area. So one of the things that always terrified me was if some of the people who used to bully me around, if mm-hmm. they found out that I was poor that terrified that scared the living shit out of me because oh, yeah. let's face it kids can be assholes and oh. <laughs> you know <laughs> without, I mean,
1: without without even and it doesn't it doesn't phase them because they don't to a certain degree i don't think kids realize that they're being assholes yeah you know
0: and So I guess that's one of the reasons why I do, and I before we started recording, I was saying this is one of those episodes that I tend to get a little bit worked up about. And I mean, that's one of the reasons that, you know, I do have great empathy for and sympathy for people who are in that situation because, you know, yeah, for me, I was so embarrassed about the fact that my family was in that situation that I took, you know, I took a neighborhood job, the paper out, and started working as soon as I could because, through most of, through my middle school years and part of my high school years, I was paying for my own school lunch. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying I should be held up as some kind of great hero or paragon of virtue. I was lucky No, because there's was,
1: a lot of, there's a lot of kids that have done that throughout yeah, the years, I'm sure.
0: Exactly. And I mean, and I don't hold it against my parents that, you know, we were in that situation. But, right. and, and I guess another reason that I do try to, you know, why this this topic does kind of get me worked up is you never know exactly how vulnerable you can be until you've had a major financial emergency hit your family. And back in 2013, my family was in a situation where had things gone a little bit differently, we may have had to turn to welfare and food stamps to keep, you know, food on the table and keep a roof over our heads. Um, which yeah. I mean, I you probably aren't interested, so I won't go into that story. But you know, yeah, it's it's terrifying. Um, and and the thing I think some people don't realize is that how poverty can affect the you know can affect children. Um, I mean, when you're listening to mom and dad yell about and argue about money all the time, and when mom and dad are arguing because they don't know if they're going to have a a place to live next month for a young child. That's terrifying because you know you look at you look at what possessions you have and it's like, okay, if we get kicked out on the street, what am I what am I going to do with all my toys, my books, my my stuff that I have? Mm-hmm. And and again, just to kind of go back to what you were saying, now I admit we weren't as I said we did go through a period of poverty, but we while we could have been much better off, we also could have been a heck of a lot worse off.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely, and that's that's kind of the idea I was trying to get across too is. You know, there there wasn't a lot of money, and there were times that, especially when my dad was on strike, that things were really tight. Because, yes, he got some money from the union, but it was nowhere near what he made, you know, on his paycheck.
0: Yeah, my wife has been um, on strike a couple times with, with her union, so I, I know it. I hear you, buddy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and and my mother is, you know, as long as I can remember, my mother always worked outside the house, too, you know. When we were real little, it was part-time. But then as we got older, it was full-time and things like that. So, um, you know, I I get where people are coming from. I understand to a certain degree what being poor is. I mean, my parents shielded us from it quite a bit. We knew there was money issues and that kind of stuff. But my parents, especially my mother, really shielded us from what was really going on. Um, like you said, I don't think we ever had food stamps Um, I do know a time or two that we went to like uh, a food place, uh, like a food bank or whatever they call them, Um, you know, and I have been lucky enough in my adult life that I've never had to, you know, take aid or have aid from anybody. Um, And and my girls have never seen that, which is nice. I mean, there's not that there's never been times where, you know, (laughs) money's tight, money's tight and, and, you know, we're eating noodles and, and butter this week but it's never been to the point where we were worried that we couldn't feed our girls or we were worried that um you know next month we're not going to be able to pay the rent well and actually that's not even true there has been months where it's been like how do i pay rent buy food and you know put clothes on my kids
0: <laughs> oh yeah and, it, and it's a juggling act yeah cuz i know there've been there was a period uh, for in my in my adult life where you know my wife and i we'd we'd pay the bills and then it's like Okay, we've got twenty dollars left. How are we going to make that last another week and a half?
1: Yeah, yeah, we got twenty bucks. We need gas, food, and you know, somebody needs a, a prescription. It just, it's, it's. Uh, it, we've all been there, and it's and it's terrifying. It's terrifying, especially when you have kids that go, "Oh, how am I going to pay rent this month?" And you know, keep me from having to somehow live on the street with my kids, or you know, for for. God's sakes, move back in with my parents or I love my parents to death. I don't want to live with either one of them, (laughs) Um, you know? (laughs) So, I mean, we've all been there and it's, and it's terrifying and it's, it's always the worst as an adult. I find it's the worst because it's always those times when you're absolutely broke and you have no money and you're already doing a juggling act that something comes up and you've got to try to figure out somewhere to squeeze $40 out for this or a hundred dollars out for that. And you just, and it's just, it's amazing how hard it is. And it's not like my wife and I don't make decent money because between the two of us, we do. Um, we make, you know, I would say above the national or the Wisconsin mean for two family, you know, two people working in a family. But, you know, you had two kids into that. and I've got one that's getting ready to go off to college. I've got another one that's, you know, a year and a half from college. And it's just, and my brain, when I sit and think about it, just, it, it just, it's like, where, where does all this money come from?
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's like, and I'm sure anyone who's lived paycheck to paycheck can relate to what I'm about to say. Sometimes you have to wonder. Is fate looking down upon you and saying, Hey, I noticed you say it managed to save up a hundred dollars. Great job. Now here's a car repair, but don't worry. It's only going to cost you 250.
1: (laughs) Fate's a dick.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And yeah. And I guess one of the other things that I know has gotten very popular and I'm not sure how you feel about this, but there's this tendency to introduce these bills that say, if you're on food stamps, this is what you can buy. This is what you can't buy. Um, and then, of course, the other big debate is drug testing the poor. So what are your takes on those issues?
1: Okay, so first of all, the you can buy this, you can't buy that. To a certain degree, I agree with it. I don't think that somebody who's on food stamps and, and you can disagree with me on this, but someone who's on food stamps should not be buying cigarettes and alcohol. Well,
0: that well, I that can is understand. Not, oh, go ahead. That
1: is, not, that is not what this was set up for. Now, to tell them, you know, you can only buy this type of cereal or you can only buy this type of, you know, uh, meat or this type of, you know, dinner, or, you know, uh, what do you call them? Uh, like TV dinners. I think that's... Going a little far, I mean I understand why I understand in theory why they're doing it. They don't want you to buy the sugary cereals with the marshmallows in them because the nutritional value isn't there, so they want you to buy Cheerios and they want you to buy you know grape nuts and so on and so forth, and I kind of get the theory of where it's coming from, but then that that's taking that step one step too far, and that would be like coming to my house and saying, "Well, Chad, you're fat." So therefore, you can only buy lettuce and vegetables and some fruit, and you can only eat turkey because turkey's lean. You can't have beef. You can't have pork because you're fat.
0: Yeah, and see, the thing is, I mean, at first, I thought those programs sounded like a good idea. Now, I can understand... Okay, well, cigarettes aren't a food product, and I wouldn't call, even though you drink alcohol, I don't consider beer a food product either. So, yeah, I can understand. <laughs> Depends
1: on how many you drink. Okay. <laughs> it really does help.
0: Okay, but my position on that eventually changed as I looked at it because okay. I came to realize that on the emotional level, programs that are meant to say like – or you know, laws, bills that are saying, okay, this is what you can buy, that's what you can't buy – It's just an excuse to bully poor people and make their lives a little shittier. But on the logical level, it doesn't do a fucking thing to solve the problem. They could pass a law stating the only thing you can buy with food stamps is moldy bread. But you know what? That doesn't take away the reason why people need to go on these programs in the first place. People are still going to lose jobs, whether they do something stupid or an accident. Companies are still going to cut people's hours to save money or lay people off. So, And I think part of the problem is it's because it's just so much easier to pass a law saying that Joe can't buy potato chips with food stamps than it is to take a look at, okay, why is Joe on food stamps? And more importantly, how do we help them get off of that program? And that's where I think a lot of our, or maybe not all of it, but that's where I think that where some of our politicians have it wrong when they're looking at these programs. They only, see, I'm sure they they see themselves as taking a tough love approach. But Mm -hmm. the problem is they only see this from the perspective that, people who are on these programs are in that position because they're lazy and don't want to work. So they figure if we bully you around and make your life miserable, you're going to go out and get a job and magically stop being poor. Okay. Now that's a topic for another day as well. But, and and again, I'm not saying all politicians are like that, but I think there are, there, there's a significant, well, there's, they're out there. The ones that will only see these recipients as lazy bums who don't want to work, you know they ignore the fact that maybe the reason Joe had to go on food stamps is because his job was outsourced to China and he went from making twenty dollars an hour to having to get paid eight dollars an hour to stock groceries but anyways, as you were about to say <laughs> no and
1: i I agree with you on that um, but I think there have to be limitations because. Otherwise, and, and, and I know people like this. I, I know people that have a job and, they, and they're and they not on food stamps. When they go shopping, they buy nothing but crap, you know. Um, and, and especially people who are on food stamps with children, you want to make sure that they're giving those kids decent food. Now, you talked about the generational poverty thing and the generational way of if you're raised one way, that's the way you're going to be kind of thing. Um, and I don't know if I'm ready to, to, uh, buy into that whole generational poverty thing. Um, you know, is it, does it happen? Is it, is it a trend that's out there? Yes. I totally agree with that, but I don't know if I'm ready to say that just because your parents are poor, you're going to be poor because there are success stories out there of my parents were poor, but look at me now.
0: Okay, and and that I agree with. I know there are people that have managed to work their way up. But again, the article I was reading a couple years ago, it was saying that it's become a lot harder to do that. Um, And
1: and I believe that. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to get anywhere, and you've got to work your ass off, and you've got to be willing to work your ass off. And unfortunately, there are too many people out there, and I'm going to sound exactly like those politicians you were just talking about, but there are too many people out there that don't know what an honest day's work is anymore. And if they got hit in the face if they got hit in the face with an honest day's work, they would be completely they wouldn't know how to deal with it.
0: Okay? So I I know we've been going on for a while here and we're probably going to end the show soon, but you know, we've talked about why we think people demonize the poor and usually with like news outlets, it's because of sensationalism. They want to air the story that they think is going to appeal to their their audience the most. But let's think about a solution. And I, I mean, I, this is a situation where I really hope and I really wish, though I, it's probably not going to happen, at least not in our lifetimes, I really hope that one of these days the politicians, the liberals start to look at the conservatives and say, okay, you've got a few good points. And the conservatives look at the liberals and go, you know you've got a few good ideas as well so rather than trying to say okay we have to take the conservative approach to solving poverty no 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 we have to take the liberal approach to solving poverty i just wish they would get to say okay how do we meet in the middle to find a solution that is going to help people so what yeah, do you we think need of- to
1: take we need to take a human position on solving the problem And we need to stop worrying so much about the little R's and the little D's because the fact that we have these different groups instead of, I mean, you look at any other country in the world. Yes, they have their different groups, you know, but those groups at some point will come together and go, all right, this is what you think. This is what we think. How can we make it work? I mean, sometimes it ends up in fist fights in congresses around the world, but they still get more done through a fistfight than we do through a four-year cycle of government. You know, because it is so, everybody is so worried that they're not going to get reelected because unfortunately, the whole idea of being a politician that our forefathers put together was, it was your civil duty to accept that responsibility if your peers put you in it. But you only did it for a short amount of time. You would go off to, you you know, you'd leave your farm in the hands of your wife and the hired help. You would go off to the state capitol or you would go off to Washington for four years, maybe six years. Then you know what you did? You said, I did my time. Thank you very much. And you went back to your
0: farm. And I know that's one of the things that, you know, you mentioned Gary Johnson, Uh, during the election was trying to push. And that's one of the things I did. I do tend to agree with uh, libertarians on is term limits. Yes. If they're good enough for the president, they should be good enough for Congress and the Senate. How does that saying go? Politicians and diapers need to be changed often and usually for the same reason?
1: Yeah, because they're both full of shit. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So (laughs) what do you think is the – so in addition to trying to find compromise – I personally think one of the solutions to solving poverty is education. And this is what scares me with our current education secretary because back when I used to work at the UW system, I was uh, doing the AV work for a presentation they were giving to the new freshmen. And there was this one graph they presented and I forgot where the study came from but it was essentially showing that how much you make over the course of your life is tied to your education level. Now, of course, you're going to have the occasional exception, the person who strikes a big deal on the with because of a reality TV show or whatever. But mm-hmm. people who have some form of training or education beyond college, I'm sorry, beyond high school whether it's college, trade school, military, whatever, mm-hmm. they make more over the course of their lives than people who only have a high school diploma. And when you start looking at people who didn't even finish high school, their, int- their lifetime income drops even further. So that's what I think is the mo- thing that we really, as a country, what we should really be focusing on is finding ways to improve the, edu- the public education system as a way to help lift people out of poverty so and and i would
1: absolutely agree with you there one of my biggest pet peeves right now with with um schools in general uh public education in general is so i have a a two-year associate's degree okay i went to i went to a technical college i got my two-year degree and you know to be to be Bluntly honest, I make almost $50,000 a year, okay, with a two-year degree. But yet, for some reason, these schools over the years have pounded into my daughter's heads, both of them, that vocational school is not as good as a college degree. And I think we have to start there, we have to start busting myths between vocational schools And four-year colleges. Now, is a vocational school as good as a four-year college? Absolutely, depending on what you're learning. Okay, I would not go to a vocational school to become an English teacher. However, on that same thing, I went for two years to get a degree in computer networking that that degree is just as good as a four-year degree when it comes to that. Because the person I go to looking for that job in networking is not looking at where my degree comes from, he's looking at what I'm able to do. So I went to vocational school, and for the cost of about a little over a year of what it's going to cost me to send my daughter to Milwaukee, I have a degree. I have a degree that if this if if I was still in the in that industry I'm I'm no longer a program or a, a, a networker but if I was still in that it would be just as good as a four year degree coming out now you know what I mean yes and I think that's the first thing is we got to start breaking down these um these barriers of thought process of the way that schools are teaching them that you have to go to a four-year degree in order for your degree to mean anything.
0: Yeah. And, and, and I agree. And I, I think the other thing to kind of go hand in hand with that, we also got to look at the affordability of college, um, mm-hmm. you know, because it has gotten, and again, say it with me, boys and girls, this is a topic for another time, but uh, you know, the fact that the college, you know, college costs have gone up so much where, it is becoming harder to afford. Well, I'll
1: tell you what. I've got, I've got one girl that's going into college this fall. Mm-hmm. Um, her four years are going to cost us about $80,000. Now, granted, that's the cost without grants and scholarships and blah, 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 blah. But it's going to be $80,000 for that kid. And then in a year and a half, then after my, my one daughter is going to have two years done in school, then I'm going to put the next one into college, and then it's going to be – instead of $20,000 a year, it's going to be $40,000 a year. And in the grand total, I'm looking at you know $160,000 to send my kids to college. That's not cheap.
0: <laughs> well, I guess uh, I won't complain about the – I think it was like $18,000 for me for five years at Oshkosh, but <laughs> –
1: yeah, I mean, and and I'm just basing these numbers off of what it's going to cost me for sending my one daughter to Milwaukee. Now that when I say twenty thousand dollars a year, that's tuition, that's housing, that's uh, you know food program, that's that's everything. Um, but still, I mean, that is that is a it's a chunk of big change. Price, that's a big price ticket. So anyway, I think this is probably a good place to wrap it up, Al.
0: Yes, I I, I think we went on a little bit longer than I thought, but hopefully, I, I mean, hopefully, guys that I mean, hopefully, what uh, we've talked about it at least gets people to think about the problem of poverty, and you know, like I said, I'm, I'm sure there's tons of politicians and important lawmakers that listen to this show, but hopefully. I I just think that in general, we need to change the way we think about not just poverty, but poor people to try to find a way to give them a hand up as opposed to just a handout.
1: No. Yeah. And I absolutely agree with you.
0: So Chad, are you ready to end the show?
1: Just, you were just about there. I just got a (laughs) few bit, a couple of pieces of paperwork here and uh, then we'll get out of here. So for coming back for a second go around next week, we have my buddy, Brian Tiemann. He's coming back. Uh, if you remember Brian, he was the guy that talked about working at the post office, and he used a lot of profanity, even more <laughs> than Al did tonight. <laughs>
0: you I know, I don't think I don't think I've really sworn very much on the the few shows I've been on with you. So,
1: <laughs> no, no, and and so tonight it's just a nice little change. It shows that you're passionate about the topic we talked about. Fuck but I can yeah. Uh there you go. I can guarantee that next week uh with Brian will be a good time. All right, so uh, want to let us know about how we're doing? Send us a note to whose podcast is it at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook at Whose Podcast Is It Anyway. We want to know if you'd like uh what you'd like to hear about, if you uh hate what you hear, if you like what you hear. Hey, if you want to be a, po- a guest on the podcast. I'm booking for June and July right now. So, uh, and that reminds me in July, we'll be celebrating our first year with episode 52. Woo-hoo! Uh, it will be a little bit different than every other podcast. I'm not going to do a standard podcast. It'll still be fun. Uh, but I want to, I want to use that to take a look back and maybe bring a few people onto the podcast that have been on before. And, just see what they, what their thing, each one of the, whoever I decide to bring back or whoever's willing to come back. We'll just touch on their topics and see if their thoughts have changed from where they were the last time we were on the topic. Uh, more details to come on that though. Uh, you can give us ideas though, at, uh, on email and uh, through Facebook. So, all right, I'll Al, quote of the day. So this is actually kind of fitting considering what we talked about in the beginning of the show, but you'll find out why in a second. So the oldest, and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is the fear of the unknown. Now I stop having people guess, but Al, you want to guess who said that? Hmm. Lovecraft. It was Lovecraft. Woo-hoo! So Howard Phillips Lovecraft, better known as H.P. Lovecraft, born August twentieth, eighteen ninety, died March fifteenth, nineteen thirty-seven, was an American author who achieved posthumous fame through his influential works of horror fiction. He was virtually unknown and published only in pulp magazines before he died in poverty, but he is now regarded as one of the most significant 20th century authors in his genre. So with that being said, Al, you got anything to wrap up with any, any last minute thoughts or, or or anything you want to talk about?
0: Hmm. Nope. Uh, no last minute thoughts, uh, right now. All right. So, don't stick uh, yeah, don't stick forks to... in the electrical outlet. Don't do that. That's that's bad.
1: There you go. All <laughs> right, I want to thank everybody for listening and we'll talk to you next week.